Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We look back on a fascinating Bahrain Grand Prix and ask if Fernando Alonso has what it takes to win the Indy 500. Sebastian Vettel reclaimed the lead of the World Championship with victory in the tense Bahrain Grand Prix, leaving a somewhat shell-shocked Mercedes to finish second and third with Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas. To dissect an eventful race, and to discuss the big news that Fernando Alonso will be racing in the Indianapolis 500 with a car entered under the McLaren banner, I'm joined first by Scott Mitchell, who this week changed his job to become Autosport.com Plus Editor. So for one time only, Scott, here's a chance to plug Autosport Plus and our premium content to give everyone a bit of an idea of what you're now doing. So Autosport Plus is where our expert journalists break their backs to bring you all of the extra insight that can't fit into to news and tweets and other sort of forms of the 21st century. So that goes for Formula One and obviously everything else from IndyCar, World Endurance, uh, touring cars and, and, and everything in between. And I believe you just pay an amazingly small fee for all this fantastic content. 
Yep, £5.50 a month or just £49 for a year. Uh, for If you're like me, that's less money than you would spend on crisps. That's something I'd urge everyone to check out. Obviously, it's a, it's a small fee, but we like to think it's worth it. And as, as we're giving you the podcast for free, why not? We also have someone who has had to wait over three decades for his debut on an Autosport podcast, Adam Cooper, who has been an ever-present in the Grand Prix paddock since the 1994 Japanese Grand Prix. That's almost 400 consecutive Grand Prix. Bahrain must rank up there among the better ones in that time. Yeah, it certainly was. I've seen a lot of fairly dull processions in that time, and obviously the last three years haven't been that uh, exciting in general, but we've had three three very good races this year, and um, yeah, Bahrain kept us on our toes, didn't it? No, massively so. It's good to, it's good to have something to get excited about, and it gives us plenty to, to talk about. So let's dig a little bit more into the race. The place to start is probably on Saturday, when Valtteri Bottas claimed his first pole in Formula 1. Adam, while the race did get away from him, how important do you think it is for Valtteri to tick off that first pole? Yeah, very important, especially coming a week after a pretty disappointing race in China. I think we all knew that he was good over one lap. We saw some great qualifying performances at Williams over the years. And yeah, to do it so early. And I asked Toto Wolf that question on, on Saturday. How important was it that he did it? Not only in only the third race, but coming so soon after China. And, and it was obviously very important for Bottas and the team and for his side of the garage. Obviously, it didn't go so well in the race, but even though there are a few asterisks against that pole position, obviously, Lewis Hamilton, I think, had a bit of a DRS problem on his second run. And I think that was reflected in the fact he lost, uh, I think, a, a quarter of a second in the in the middle sector. So do we think any of that takes a bit of a, a sheen off it, or is it just pole in the record books? That's that particular monkey off the back. I guess there were circumstances that, that held Lewis up, but in the end, you've got to get the job done. Valtteri did it, and hopefully it's been good for his confidence even if the race was was another disappointing one for him so let's see what happens in Russia. The other thing about Bottas's pole lap is that in the first and second sectors on the lap that got him pole he wasn't up on his previous best you know he had to dig deep in that final sector to to improve and while certain factors aligned to stop Hamilton improving Bottas did the job didn't he and this is the sort of thing that sort of digging deep and and pulling out in a what's a you know relatively short final sector he 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 earned he earned that pole I guess I guess there's an element of keeping the tyres alive over the lap as well if you're, if you're good in the final sector. So that's all part of the game as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's certainly part of it in, in Bahrain where even with these tyres, the very high track temperatures, even in the evening. I mean, that's, I mean, that's all important. But I think it is good for, for Bottas. I always expected him in one of these first four races to put in a, a big qualifying performance and out-qualify Hamilton. So I think he will... He will take the the positive from that, even if if Sunday didn't go didn't go so well. So it's it's a, it's positive for him. Adam's point about sort of bouncing back from from China is really valid because okay, we'll we'll get on to to, to the race in a minute, and it did go back away from him. But I think there was a, a a joke Toto sort of made in his on in the big media briefing as well, where he sort of referenced the Finnish concept of Sisu. Mark Webber's got his Twitter handle, his Aussie grit. Well, Sisu is the Finnish equivalent of that, isn't it? That ability to to dig deep and and bounce back. And Bottas, I think he showed that he's got that in spades and analysed his performance in China immediately. And to to deliver a pole lap straight out of the box next next time out is all credit to him for that. There's a few question marks sometimes from people over Bottas's strength mentally, but I do think he has got that ability to dissect what's gone wrong and come back stronger. It's a little bit of a cliche, but I think he'll do that from after the race as well. Now, looking at the start, Bottas held onto the lead, but he did have a problem even before the start with the Mercedes generator not working, so they couldn't bleed the, the rear tyres, so he was overinflated. Too much pressure, too much temperature, no rear grip, which set up this first stint in which the, the top five were all running together with Bottas, chased by Vettel, Hamilton, Verstappen and Ricciardo. Now, 
do we accept that as a as a reason for Bottas's struggle? He certainly did seem to be having quite a lot of difficulty. I think we have to really. I mean, it seems a bit of a strange situation that Mercedes had that problem and weren't able to solve it. Although you'd like to think they have a tire pressure gauge that as well, a backup, you can just yeah. do it and bleed it off manually. Exactly. Or that you'd have thought that they'd have had a couple of minutes to sort it, or they could have dragged the generator over from the other car or what have you. But yeah, we heard that radio message where he was talking about um, having trouble with the rears and then another one coming back saying there's a problem with the pressure. So the team obviously knew from the start that what the problem was. And it was interesting in that first stint, Vettel got ahead of, of Hamilton, made a better start and then completed that move around the outside of the first corner. Vettel a few times looked like he was going to threaten, but otherwise it was just a just this stacked queue that really set up a really interesting scenario building towards that first but how, how great is it to actually see like a lead group for for yeah. a change i mean we were so surprised in melbourne like uh, a few people saying things such as you know, when vettel came back at hamilton in melbourne and they were saying, oh, we, we don't see that anymore and and now in that okay it, we had the situation where bottas was effectively the the cork in the bottle but brilliant to see and even the red bulls in the mix as well you know like four or five car mini train for the lead essentially and that that sort of thing all the fear pre-season that we weren't going to see good racing in these cars, won't be able to follow, won't be able to overtake. And we, we had that in the first stint and it, it just, it looks so impressive, especially the new cars. They, they do look cool this year. And visually, it was just a really impressive spectacle. And it was interesting to see Vettel's quote after the race and he, he knew exactly what he was doing, getting in between the two of them. I think he said he was in there to sort of cause trouble. And I guess that's what he did because... The funny thing is that normally if you've got two cars at the front and you're fighting against one, then you should be in charge of what's going on. But Vettel getting in between the Mercs seemed to sort of throw them a bit. They didn't really know how to deal with it, did they, as we, we saw when the race played out? And it stopped them from reacting to Bottas's problem as well, because obviously if Hamilton's behind Bottas and Valtteri radios in and says, oh, I'm struggling with this, I don't have the pace, an option at least to Mercedes is to effectively swap the cars and say to, to Valtteri, look, we know you've got a problem let Lewis go now, don't hold him up and we you know, might come back in your favour later in the race if you're, we're running one and two on lap 30 or something but that option's immediately removed. It's interesting isn't it, I imagine in that race they probably wouldn't have taken that option to release Hamilton but with the way the championship's shaping up and what we saw later in the race if that scenario were to arise again it would be quite interesting to see how Mercedes approaches it and whether they think actually we need every second we can get here because we, we don't have this big advantage anymore and all these little decisions are absolutely critical. Yeah, Toto admitted that after the race. I mean, again, I asked him the question Sunday night. Did they expect to be basically imposing team orders or instructions or whatever you want to call it um, so early in the season and twice in the same race in the same direction as well? Effectively, he was saying we're under so much pressure that we're going to have to have a real think about this. And that creates a really interesting scenario because we do have a number one and number two shape appearing both at Ferrari and Mercedes, Bottas, probably being a little bit stronger overall than Raikkonen is relative to, to Vettel. But that's going to be absolutely critical for them, making sure they don't leave points on the table. It's not this scenario where you've got two drivers at a similar level taking points off each other. It's the situation where you need to make sure in the race situation you don't have one driver costing costing times. If you give away one or two seconds, that can be transformative to the overall result. And it'll be interesting to see what happens if it's the other way around and it appears that Hamilton is the one that's holding up Bottas, which could happen. I mean, yeah. that stop under the safety car, they split the strategies, one on super soft, one on soft. Maybe next race they do it the other way around and Bottas is the one that has the performance and Lewis is the one who's struggling. And then, then we have a very interesting scenario. The way I always look at it is that it's not just about having a number one and number two driver. It's whoever's quicker in the race situation. So it could have a race where... 
Bottas is quicker than Hamilton, Raikkonen's quicker than Vettel. And then they flip round and they become the number one drivers because you'll still need your second driver to take points off the championship threat for the other for the other team. And if Ferrari and Mercedes can stay so close, we're going to see a lot of scenarios like that this year. I think we're, we're much more likely to see the second Mercedes taking points off of Hamilton, uh, you know, their teammates' title rival than the second Ferrari getting involved in that sort of fight. Well, hopefully Kimi will pull his finger out in the next few races because if he's in the mix as well it will certainly make things interesting and I mean the fact that Mercedes are struggling to get the strategies right when they're fighting one car if there were two Ferraris there it's obviously going to be even more complicated yeah not holding out a great deal of hope I think it was nine tenths difference in qualifying I think that was an exaggeration but Raikkonen's been very much the fourth driver in that collection I think he's been fourth fifth and fourth this year hasn't he so if he can't do it in Bahrain, it makes you wonder where he can do it because that's been a strong circuit in recent years for him. Yeah, and he complains that he's aware that it's taken him too long to get comfortable with a in a potentially title-winning car, but you have to agree with him. It's, it's taken him nine years. He, has, he hasn't been comfortable in a title-winning car since he won the title, has he? Even that year, he wasn't that happy with it with the, the understeer balance that you had with those, those Bridgestone tyres. So uh, anyway, Kimi was kind of out of this lead battle. So going back to the race, we had this situation with the five cars behind Bottas. Ferrari was the one that blinked first, so to speak, with actually what was quite an aggressive move. Vettel pitted at the end of lap 10. He came in for another set of super softs, so straight away Ferrari was locked into a two-stop strategy because they hadn't used the softs. Obviously, we were waiting for how that all panned out, how long Mercedes would stay out for. We did see Verstappen pit the lap after, but the others stayed out. And then the race was changed by the safety car caused by the, the Sainz Stroll incident, which we'll probably come back to later. But the safety car comes out, Everyone comes in and then we had this problem in the pits with, well, multiple problems in the pits for, for the Mercedes drivers, starting off with what Hamilton did on, on the way into the pits that earned the penalty. So Adam, just tell us a little bit about that. Do you think that was a justified penalty? I think so. I think it's pretty clear in the rules. Um, it was introduced by Charlie a few years ago that you can't go unnecessarily slowly. I can't remember the exact word. You can't go unnecessarily slowly and hold people up. And obviously people have been trying to do that when they know they're going to be stacked because they don't want to be sat waiting for an extra three or four seconds with potential overheating problems. Particularly in Bahrain. Where it's exactly, yeah. Hot. And secondly, they, in the past, people were deliberately trying to hold up the guys behind because it's a bit of gamesmanship going on. And obviously Lewis was trying to do that and he just got it wrong. He There's a, a fine line and he, he crossed it. You have got a reasonable amount of flexibility rolling into the pit lane before the speed limit line where you can get away with doing that a bit so maybe it was just a little bit too late perhaps he just got caught out with where the start of the pit lane was in, in real terms because he still seemed to almost be slowing down after he crossed the line the thing with him backing back ricardo up is obviously he can't predict uh, a, a wheel gun problem on bottas's car making him slow away but that's the, the perverse nature of that is that he he wouldn't have gained because Bottas didn't move away any quicker than he than he would have done. So whether Lewis had come in at a normal speed anyway, he would have ended up queuing, queuing behind his teammate. So I guess the only benefit there, presumably, is just he's only stationary for a second rather than four seconds. And you say like the overheating problem, particularly problematic in, in Bahrain. And the other funny thing was that because Lewis had held up the Red Bull, Bottas then had to wait for the Red Bull. It, the, <laughs> yeah. Ricardo should have been coming into his pit as, as Bottas was ready to go. So there was a little bit more time lost there and then Lewis was waiting and it was a combination of circumstances. I know that you can't really legislate for a for a faulty wheel gun, but Hamilton making, that's a 50-50 call coming into the pits, isn't it? Like you, He'll get it wrong one race and then the next race he might do it and he might time it perfectly. But with that, Mercedes taking a little bit longer to to react to the Ferrari or maybe sticking to their own strategy and not trying to, to react to Ferrari. 
obviously what happened in, in, in Melbourne with, with, with Lewis coming back out of the, the pits and getting stuck behind Verstappen's Red Bull. Now that we're actually finally seeing Mercedes get regularly challenged, are, are, they, are they struggling to, 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 deal with, to deal with that? Are they, are, they, are they making errors? Or is it just a genuine factors that happen, that come, come into play when you're in a tight battle? So we're seeing just fine margins naturally decide racing. Well, there's two factors there. First, the fact that in the previous few years, having a big advantage on pace buys you a lot of margin for error and mistakes. If Mercedes had that race last year or the year before in 2014, no one would really have noticed it. You'd just say, well, they lost a bit of time there, a bit of time there, but it didn't matter. But I do think that you're more exposed in this kind of scenario. Your strategy, your decision-making, your ability to think on your feet is challenged more by by these question marks. And obviously, Mercedes decided to hold firm early on with their strategy by leaving the cars out because if the safety car hadn't come out, Vettel was on course to jump them anyway. So the safety car didn't make any difference to the, the track position. If anything, Mercedes ended up in quite a good situation with still the cars in second and third after Hamilton had passed Ricardo at the restart because Verstappen was out of the way due to the brake failure. But it is something that Mercedes needs to be looking at, whether their strategy is right, because there have been a few little errors. And actually Ferrari, which strategically was a bit weak last year, has arguably been the, the sharper team. Was there any suggestion of why there was the, the wheel gun problem in Bahrain? I think Toto mentioned a problem in the in the garage, a power problem or something like that. That's a little bit worrying about your fail safes and your backups. Remember when we had the problem with Mercedes had one of the races last year, the another five second stop, and there was a, a stopwatch problem. Exactly, yeah. Whereby they held was it Rosberg they held? They were, for, he was timed on a on an iPhone, wasn't he? Yeah, very, and it very amateurishly. And it didn't and it didn't start, which was astonishing. So he gave away several extra seconds. Well, they've had sixty odd races of domination. Obviously, they they lost a few various circumstances, incidents and wet weather and so on, but they were basically dominant for 60 races. And in those 60 races, I'm sure there were lots of little problems that we never even heard about or we've forgotten about, little delays at pit stops. I used to go to speak to Paddy pretty much after every victory to see what had gone on. And it's amazing how often he'd mention brake issues or engine issues or temperature issues or, or fuel saving. But we we didn't really hear about them on the radio very often and they didn't affect the outcome. Occasionally it might have favoured Rosberg or favoured Hamilton, but it, it never left them exposed to anybody behind. But now, obviously, they're vulnerable because it's close. Which is good news because it makes for an interesting season, doesn't it? With track position has been very important. I know always saying track position is king sounds like a truism because of course it is, it's racing, but with passing being harder these strategic decisions are influencing every race and you can actually argue that in each of the three races this year it's been strategy combined with the timing of safety cars that has decided each of the races so coming back to the race once we're into the second stint we'll leave the red bulls to one side for for now because verstappen had already gone out and ricardo faded once he'd switched to the softs and wasn't a factor so we had vettel leading bottas and hamilton bottas had a couple of looks early on in that stint after the restart but it was quite quickly clear that it was Hamilton versus Vettel again the key in this part of the race was that Hamilton got stuck behind Bottas I think he lost about 4.8 seconds before he got let past in a what might be called quite a compliant move and that led to what you were saying Adam with Wolf talking about changing their approach on team orders so is that the the critical decision for Hamilton especially with the fact that you had the time penalty hanging over him the five seconds that either would be added at a second pit stop or if there wasn't one would be added post-race was it a surprise they didn't release Hamilton quicker yeah it looks like they they were having um, doubts about it and obviously there was a there must have been a feeling in the garage on the pit wall that to do that to Valtteri at this stage of the season might be a bit counterproductive but um, 
I don't know how many laps it, it took to lose those seconds, but I guess eventually they made that decision. And perhaps now, even as we speak, they're having meetings in Brackley and talking about that scenario, and, and they'll come back to the drivers with new uh, rules of engagement on the basis of that, that great they, phrase, yeah, the rules of engagement. Racing intent, it's called now. They've oh, changed, changed, changed the it's name. It's been rebranded. Yeah, yeah, it's the sequel it sounds, to rules of engagement. Yeah, it sounds <laughs> rules of engagement better. to yeah. racing intent. Yeah, well, Toto, <laughs> said, Toto said basically we, we cut and pasted what we had previously with um, with Nico. Perhaps they need to revisit that and make both drivers understand that there might be occasions where we we need to make an instant decision and the moment the other guy appears in your mirrors it won't be a question of seeing who's faster and dilly dallying but you know within one or two laps you'll be told to let him through because it's all about racing Vettel and Ferrari and the constructors and so on and we'll sort out the the drivers between the two of you later and you know maybe next time it'll favour you if you have to and a position over this time or maybe it'll favour you later in the race who knows I think that's what both drivers have to remember particularly Bottas there will be days when he's quicker than Hamilton and you have to remember there's a little bit of a, a pain now for gain later remember a case involving Bottas in Malaysia a few years ago um, in 2014 when Massa was first at Williams and they, they were trying to order Bottas past Massa who was struggling and it didn't happen and actually Massa having refused to heed that order and then Williams saying okay we won't do that in the future the ne- I think it was the very next race the roles were reversed and Massa was getting annoyed. So it's it's the requirement of both the drivers to realise that there's a swings and roundabouts element to this, especially with the Ferrari situation, given that it's looking least likely that Ferrari will have the problem with this than any of the other top three teams because Raikkonen is going to find it quite hard to get track position on Vettel with the pace he's currently showing. If they react very quickly, they might wrong foot Ferrari because Ferrari was expecting, I guess, Hamilton to catch up with Bottas and then you know nothing to happen. In fact, I think it was a Ferrari radio message was the first sign we had that there was a, at least a discussion going on at um, Mercedes. I don't think we got a sort of team order message from Mercedes. We got a second-hand one from Ferrari. But next time, if, if Mercedes have, as I suggested, discussed this option of instant place swapping, Ferrari might be surprised that suddenly Hamilton's through or Bottas is through and, and when they were expecting to gain a few seconds there. Well, it sounded like Ferrari had basically just assumed that, that that swap had taken place when they got the radio message because it was basically like you know, Mercedes have swapped, the, swapped their drivers but Hamilton was actually behind Bottas for a good you know like at least a couple of laps after that and then obviously it happened so it was almost like they were just like right react quickly and then I guess when they looked they would have gone oh actually well, that, I guess then that would naturally have been a sort of a, a hurry up to, to Vettel in any circumstance wouldn't it so it's not like that backfired in any way but I think the fact that they didn't swap places initially, at least on the face of it, seemed to catch Ferrari out as well. They thought, okay, well that's an in- that's an immediate decision, and and it, and it wasn't necessarily made. I just found in my notes that the, I think the first sign we had was Lewis saying something like, "If I can't catch him, meaning Vettel, I'll let him, meaning Bottas, back pass." So the, there was obviously a discussion going on about a bit of give and take, and then um, Vettel was told that Hamilton and Bottas will swap positions. So Vettel knew that it was going to happen soon, and it makes sense, and I like we've discussed, we are going to see this happening. And this is actually the area where Ferrari has a bit of an advantage because one of its cars out of the way of Vettel, but that also means that Raikkonen's often out of the way of the Mercedes drivers. So that, in some ways, could help Mercedes because they won't have a second Ferrari to worry about. And you could have scenarios where it's two versus one with Vettel standing almost alone that could make life very difficult for Ferrari. But they have got a Red Bull or two to worry about. Obviously, Verstappen was key in the last race, but he was in, sorry, in Australia, but he was some way back. But then. 
in Bahrain, he without the problem, he should have been right there in the mix and and somehow getting in between the Ferraris and Mercedes. And we unfortunately we won't know how that would have played out. Exactly. Well, Verstappen would have been second after the safety car had he not had the rear brake failure at turn four on his outlap, which would have made things quite interesting. And we don't know whether Verstappen would have struggled on the soft tyres like Ricardo did uh, later in the race, but it would have been an interesting thing to see how it plays out. But the race we did have, once Bottas was out of the way and the Red Bulls were out of the way, it was fundamentally down to Vettel versus Hamilton. There was a on the outside a bit of a feel that maybe Mercedes would try and send Hamilton to the end because they put him on soft in the middle stint. I don't think that was ever the intention from Mercedes anyway, and even if they had, there'd have been no chance of this paying off. Vettel went to lap 33, stopped for his final time, went back out. Hamilton stayed out another eight laps, made his stop, and he came out. It was just under 20 seconds, I think. And so it was this this question of Hamilton on fresher rubber chasing down Vettel. And at that time, I thought, well, there's no chance this is going to happen. But there was a point once Hamilton was back through into second and he started to put the hammer down. I think there was one lap where he was 1.8 seconds fast. You thought, well, this probably shouldn't happen, but there might just be enough pace there to carry him up to Vettel. Yeah, and the traffic def- definitely didn't help Vettel, did it, towards the end. But he, he, I think he Vettel had it totally under control. He knew he had, I think it was 19 seconds in 16 laps Hamilton had to get. And he let the gap come down and he, he just kept enough in his tyres for the last five or six laps. So I don't think it was any real problem. Anyway, it was nice in the end that the gap, the final gap, was pretty meaningless because they were both, I guess, cruising the last lap. But it was 5.8 or something. So at least it was more than the the five second penalty so yeah it, i think it peaked at around 5.8 and then that, that, that was a 6. Point that was the smallest one i think it was 6.7 yeah. at the flag but obviously the last lap's always a bit tricky the only thing that was a you know particularly disappointing about that is it robs us of that potential scenario where hamilton has a more obvious carrot you know a closer ferrari it did look like vettel was actually quite comfortable you know that's another really impressive thing about this ferrari and race trim it does seem to be able to respond when they come under pressure on on track but there's a difference, obviously, between a Hamilton that's trying to eat into this massive gap when there's a car a straight length away, but then if you you know get down to you know, five seconds, four seconds, three seconds, and then you know if you took the gaps at face value, he would have been in DRS range at, at least once. So you know you only need one opportunity, and so a driver like Hamilton, when he's in a battle that he's relishing at the moment, that for me was like the the big drawback from from the race. Yeah, exactly. If without that five second time penalty, that that five point eight would have been point eight with a couple of less to go. Which uh, would have been interesting. There was a point where I was hoping we might have a scenario where if Hamilton didn't make the second stop, we might have had the winner on the road not being the winner in the final results. There haven't been many cases of that in the World Championship. There's only been a very, very small number. I guess the last one was probably Hamilton at Spa in 2008 when he had the the post-race penalty for gaining advantage by cutting the final chicane before passing Raikkonen in the crazy end of the race. I hate that situation, though. Like that, it just looks so rubbish. Oh, it looks rubbish, but I love a statistical anomaly. There have been hardly any of these. There was one... Somebody did it at Monza, didn't they? They won on the road, but they had a penalty for a jump start. Was it seventy eight? Yeah, it was yeah, Andretti. It was Andretti and Villeneuve got jump start. I have, I have plenty of bad things to say about NASCAR, and ignorantly as well, considering I don't really watch it very much. But one thing I do really like about them is that the what, the person who wins on the road, the person that the fans see trackside win the race, is when they get home, that person has still won the race. But it's different when when we've had. 40 laps of knowledge that the guy's getting a time penalty if someone's penalized three hours after the race in the steward room after people have driven home that's a bit different but i think it's fair enough if we if we know there's a time penalty and there's the excitement of the driver trying to overcome it yeah that's very true but i'm still going to stick to my guns and say i like a statistical anomaly so i'd have i'd have enjoyed that one 
we haven't talked much about Vettel. There's not an enormous amount to say about his race. Obviously, he had the courage to take the aggressive strategy. He was trying to undercut everyone than he would have done to get the lead. We don't know how that race would have panned out, but it was a really well-measured race by Vettel. I think, as we said, he didn't he didn't panic in that final stint when Hamilton was catching up. He seemed to have it all under control. Absolutely crucial um, defence as well, uh, the safety car restart. Yeah, yeah. You know, Bottas, True. actually, in terms of track position, led after the restart on the run down to Turn 4. He got just in front. Given how much we saw of it when Rosberg and Hamilton went wheel to wheel, and how much uh, focus there was on the rules of engagement between those two drivers, if that had been the two Mercedes last year doing what they did through Turn Four, when Vettel effectively, you know, lets the car run wide and doesn't shove Bottas off the road, but you know, does certainly enough that Bottas has to get out of the throttle and and get back onto on, onto the track. You know, Vettel was absolutely ruthless there. He did had probably one. That was the one moment in the race where he had to just go proper elbows out to win that race or to stop his race being hugely compromised, and he did it. Bottas is on board of that that instant. It's fascinating because, you know, Bottas gets a massive wiggle on coming out of, of two, which always happens when you're trying to cut back on the car, and he gets past him, and you can just tell the moment where, like, inside the crash helmet, Bottas would have been like, I've got this, I'm half a car length in front, I can go around the outside of four, because four, off, as it opens up on the exit, gives you that that prospect, and then Vettel just comes back across and pushes him out and retains the pace. That was absolutely crucial. That's a good point, Scott. And I also think it's great to see Vettel racing at his best with that intent in wheel-to-wheel, say that racing intent in wheel-to-wheel stuff, nailing it all the time, which I don't think we saw last year. So we've got this fantastic thing with Hamilton and Vettel at the top of their game really going for it, which I think all you ever want to see. I don't, I don't mind who wins. I just want to see a really good fight between great drivers. Yeah, I think Vettel seems to have found an extra gear this year. I mean, that start when he got past Hamilton, the restart in Bahrain, as you said, and then don't, don't forget coming out of the pits in Australia in front of Verstappen and Hamilton. I was watching at turn one and two and he had a big slide coming through turn two and he managed to hold on to it. And I think he had a slide in, in Bahrain, didn't he, at the restart in the right-hander. So he's they, those crucial moments, uh, he's getting them right. I just love seeing the way he he reacts instinctively stuff what, what race was it where he he dived down the inside of the two cars into the pit lane because you can race right up until the proper pit lane entry can't you and he just he knew that and he dived past i can't remember who it was i think it was was it in malaysia uh in 15 i just i i just remember the the onboard and it's and it's just brilliant it's just someone who knows the rules inside out and he goes i've got a chance here and boom he does it I only saw the clip the other day of him in the um, room behind the podium. He was so excited, wasn't he, talking about the race and Bottas and Hamilton were sitting in the background looking, looking fairly depressed. You can see he's so up for it, isn't he? It's fantastic. There also seem to be genuine excitement and respect between Hamilton and Vettel and Bottas as well. You know, I know Bottas has faded in, in race trim in terms of not being able to quite put it together, but you know, he was the guy who did take it wheel to wheel with Vettel on the restart in, in Bahrain. You know, he gave it a very good go. And um I think like Wolf referred to them as sort of it's like the the three of them as having like a bit of a like, you know, Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal dynamic, you know, total, total competitive respect with that element of I really really want to beat this guy if that manifests itself in some sort of off track not necessarily needle like they don't have to hate each other a bit of hate would be good but they don't have to hate each other but just enough to just sort of keep you really interested in what you're doing like like Adam said you know seeing a driver massively revel in a victory after the race you know it's what we want to see we want to see human emotion don't we so let's quickly go back to Bottas obviously he faded in the race Solid third place. He had the problem in the first stint, which we talked about, but he never seemed to find great pace for the rest of the race. So do we just say that's just where he was that weekend? 
Well, also, I think the tyre situation at Mercedes is quite complicated. I think we've seen in, um, certainly in Australia with Lewis and again with Bottas in Bahrain, they are struggling to get the tyres um, in the optimum window. And um, they've been, they're working on it, obviously, in the test this week. Um, maybe it's too simplistic to say that the package that works so well in qualifying over one lap in a race, it's just taking too much out of the tyres and, and Red Bull and Ferrari is a slightly different scenario but hopefully Mercedes can work on that and get it right. The big concern there for me is that you know Bottas is quite clearly compared to Hamilton better than Raikkonen is to, to Vettel but in rate in the races you know it, well in, in, in Bahrain you know he fell he fell back so far and Kimi sort of rallied didn't he in the final stint to the point where there's what like a couple of seconds between them at the flag Bottas is better than that he is not underperforming in the same way that Kimi is and what he doesn't need is to be characterised by uh, as a proper number two in the same way Raikkonen is because of what the result sheet looks like like that you don't need that sort of ad- added pressure especially as he's on a, a one-year deal isn't he for at the moment so he needs to be impressing in all facets not just you know the occasional pole position or catching Lewis at the end of a stint every other Grand Prix. There's a long way to go but yeah these early races are important and that the pole was one marker but he needs to have a few more brilliant qualifying performances and obviously a, a really strong race where he beats Lewis and hopefully Vettel fair and square. And I'll back him to do that I think Bottas is a, is a very strong driver it's important early on to get that win that's the really key thing just to settle everything down it buys you quite a lot of time and means people stop piling on the pressure and no matter what drivers say they know they shouldn't react to that pressure but it's easier said than done to actually keep performing at your best while you feel under pressure to force the issue. I think it's worth briefly coming back to Red Bull who we've only vaguely talked about obviously we saw Ricardo managed to split the Ferraris in qualifying now there was quite a big gap you could park a bus in that gap so speaking after qualifying I asked Ricardo about that and he said well the fact we split the Ferraris I don't really take a great deal from that but the fact we're quite close to Vettel I do take something from and it, it seems to be it seems to be that Red Bull were stronger relatively speaking the higher temperatures have played a part in that and the fact they're just understanding what was actually quite a tricky car to get on top of in the early races. Yeah I think the qualifying gap in China was 1.3 and funny enough the fastest lap gap to from Red Bull to the front was 1.3 in China as well and it was 0.8 in qualifying in um, Bahrain so they got half a second closer to the front in one weekend or whether that was purely track specific or they'd actually found something that, that made a difference we'll, we'll maybe find out in Russia. Well they seemed genuinely confused didn't they? Ricardo was quite open about the fact that they were a bit perplexed about the fact that they were so much closer and especially because I think it was I think he was asked wasn't he you know this is, wasn't really a track that in theory you would expect them to make that improvement and yet all of a sudden this 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 Red Bull that has been really tricky to unlock performance from as, you, as Adam says like makes not just a small gain as well you know like the sort of things that you might find weekend to weekend with a, like a setup change or better understanding of a concept but a, a genuine a leap forward I think it was also though magnified by what happened in the race Verstappen said he was frustrated when the brakes went because he felt, wow, well, this is a race we could be in contention for victory. And Ricardo thought the same thing after the first stint because he was driving around admittedly fifth, having been passed by Verstappen on the first lap. And they thought, well, we, we've got a chance here. But as the race went on, things kind of panned out. Red Bull are a big step closer, as you say, but I think they weren't going to be in there in there for the fight. The, the interesting thing was Ricardo talking after the race, I could accept Mercedes and Ferrari are getting the softs to work better than we are because they've got more downforce they're putting more temperature through it but 
when I've got a Williams going past me, that tells me there's quite a problem here and we need to really understand what it is that's making it difficult for us to get the best out of the softs. We don't know whether Verstappen would have had the same problem. There's a reasonable chance he would have done. There's definitely an interesting tyre story going on at Red Bull. Um, in China, if you remember, they used the super softs in the race uh, quite successfully and Ricardo said the same thing there. We, we don't have the downforce to make the softs work and as we saw, he struggled on that restart to an amazing extent. But the interesting thing was that Verstappen said that they were doing really well on the tyres in the first stint on the super soft. So there could be races where tyres are a big issue and, and Red Bull are able to make the super soft last in a, in a much more successful way than, than certainly Mercedes and possibly Ferrari and that might play into their hands. It says a lot about how big the window performance is on the Red Bull that you know they can run so strongly in the in the first stint and then as you say Ricardo nailed three times in the space of a lap on the on the restart and eventually end up 40 seconds off Vettel's race winning time so you're like if you went from race to race with that sort of change you'd be like ah oh, you know well our cars clearly just reacting differently on different layouts and suit in one place better than another to have that swing uh, from the start of the race to the end with a you know a safety car that bunched everyone together as well that's a that, that's a worrying extreme isn't it and it's also potentially costing them in qualifying, isn't it? it it's that old story of um, being gentle on your tyres in, in the race, but not working them hard enough, getting the most out of them in qualifying. And you've got to get that, that balance right. Looking elsewhere in the race, obviously we had the Science Stroll collision. Three-place grid penalty for Science for the Russian Grand Prix. Stroll got a little bit of criticism in some quarters for that incident, but it seemed to me that was a fairly clear-cut case. Certainly once you'd seen the onboard from, from Science, that, that was just his error. I think so. I think if you're the guy coming out of the pits, you do have to leave a margin. And uh, the force he hit him with, it was <laughs> it was incredible, wasn't it? But the, what I would say is that it's very interesting thing Science said, that he, he assumed that Stroll would go wide and leave space, knowing that he'd then have the advantage in the next bit. And it's very interesting in, in China, on that first lap, when he had the contact with, with Perez, Perez said a very similar thing. Said, he said, oh, I thought he was leaving, he was going to leave space. So you could... I think it's fair enough to say Stroll was innocent in both cases, but is there a question of sort of him not being as aware of what's going on around him as some of the more experienced drivers? And maybe we should, we should keep an eye on that situation. I think maybe in the case of China, there's a legitimate point. I think in with with the science Stroll collision in Bahrain, obviously there's a point there where science was still slowing down and going in a straight line and Stroll had basically stopped moving forward he was now at 90 degrees to travel and if you look at the onboard I'm not sure Sainz would have not drifted a bit wide anyway in that corner I think the agreement the drivers have is if you've got to drive a car there you've got to leave a car with cars with anyway but even if Stroll was in a position where he had to do that and to be honest I think he was probably far enough ahead not not to have to I think Sainz would have piled into him anyway but but yeah there's there's no question that China I think is a legitimate one to say Stroll played a part in that although certainly wasn't his fault fundamentally your point there about where you know the four signs hit stroll with and you know how much how much space was was left that that incident for me was one of the brilliant examples of this argument that oh i was halfway up the inside of a driver when you make contact i think that is such that is always a really relative argument that almost removes the the relevance of how quickly you've entered the corner anyone can get halfway up the up the inside of the car in front if they don't break for the corner for example and in that situation the only reason that they make contact is because signs is to my mind going into that corner far too quickly he's not making the apex it's not like that accident occurred with stroll climbing over the curb and 
and signs forced you know off track to the inside because he'd been moved over stroll is so far ahead you know the signs on board stroll so far ahead by the time signs comes out of the pits i don't know where he's breaking like why he thinks i i can i can hit the brakes at this point coming out the pits and this person who is you know has just come charging down the pit straight he's x number of car lengths in front of me you know he's just he's just not gonna not gonna turn in i just think i think it was actually like if any inexperience there it's on it's on science's part that was a little bit of a stupid like rookie error for a driver who i massively respect and like and think he's generally been absolutely excellent since he entered f1 i think that's just a case of an over eager driver isn't it he wanted he doesn't want to waste any time behind someone who's yet to stop so you know mistake for carlos and i think the, the three-place grid penalty was was fair looking a bit further back just outside the points we had pascal verline in 11th place on his return, Antonio Giovinazzi filled in that Sauber seat the first couple of races. Verline had his accident in the race of champions in Miami in January, which uh, broke three vertebrae and also did some damage to the discs between them and meant he couldn't train. He got a lot of stick for, for sitting out two races, but I was I was impressed with Verline's performance. He said it was like he'd never been away and he was a bit surprised that there wasn't more discomfort in the races. In some discomfort out of the car, but in the car... He says he was comfortable, and actually his performance overall during the weekend suggests he's certainly not suffering in terms of what he can do with the car. Yeah, it was a really good effort considering all the fuss that's been going on around him. Um, we saw a few shots of him in the middle of uh, some fairly exciting action with other cars, so yeah, good job. Maybe it's a matter of circumstance and Sauber was the Sauber was just better suited to Bahrain and, and did well there, but massively impressed that for a car that just genuinely couldn't mix it with the midfield group on merit at the first two races... You know, Verline managed to beat Fiat Palmer and Alonso. Okay, Alonso retired at the end, but he earned that position. And on a what you'd have to say is an unfavourable strategy, yeah, leaving himself yeah. vulnerable at, at the end of the race, coming under attack. And his defence on Fiat for for eleventh as well at that stage of the race, when presumably he's very tired. If if his fitness problem is a problem and he's feeling discomfort, it's going to be absolute maximum on the last lap when he just wants the race to be over. He's coming under attack from a faster car on better tires to to just go no do you know what I, I want this position I'm going to go elbows out into turn one very fair strong defense I just think he showed he basically showed everything that people were claiming he didn't show by missing the first two races which was proper like full commitment and bravery I think the whole debate about whether he should have driven in Australia obviously he drove in Friday practice then drops out was multiplied what well, the controversy was multiplied by some fairly poor communication on the part of the team I think they they tried to play the trick of underplaying the injury after it had happened and into testing. And then suddenly when the when you got to Australia and it was a problem, they said, well, this is a serious problem. He hasn't been able to train. And so I think Sauber held themselves a bit back with that. But personally, I do think that it was a it was the right decision for him to sit out a couple of races and make sure he built up that training. He said he lost four or five weeks of training. All he could do was uh, was sit on an exercise bike, basically, which obviously didn't help him in terms of ramping up the the fitness for the for the high lateral G's and, and the higher forces involved in F1 cars this year. Yeah, the curious thing was that he did that Friday um, in Australia because if it, if it we assume it was a fitness problem, and obviously they should have known that his fitness level before the weekend. It wasn't a question of him getting in the car and and putting some kind of stress on on the injury or hampering his recovery in some way which is very odd that they didn't decide a week before that um they were going to put Giovinazzi in and at least communicated that fact and said actually based on testing we know Pascal is very marginal they could have actually said actually this guy is being pretty bold by trying to do Australia if it had all been communicated clearly then after he dropped out on Friday you'd have said well fair enough you've tried a bit like when 
Sergio Perez came back in Canada after his Monaco shunt, and after Friday he said, actually, I'm I'm feeling nauseous in the car. I can't drive, and Pedro de la Rosa stepped in for yeah, him. Yeah, and that's quite a brave decision to step out of the car because obviously drivers want to race, and they, they also want to keep the other guy out because they're afraid of being uh, shown up or whatever. So I, I, I said to Manisha in Australia, it was a brave decision, and she got really excited and, and said, yeah, and she was so frustrated with all the, the criticism. Some of the criticism is rather childish, isn't it? It's yeah. like, well, back in the day, everyone yeah, was Nicky heroic. Lauder. <laughs> well, yeah. well, Nicky Lauder and Fuji didn't yeah. drive in the wet. That wasn't yeah. an injury-related issue, but that was a safety-related issue. And yes, for all the time we have people pushing cars over lines while exhausted, etc., this is a question of a driver who's fundamentally not fit, trying to drive, not being able to, and having the good sense to say, no, I know I can't do this. I'm going to build up my fitness, build up my strength. And it wasn't like he was sitting around doing nothing since Australia. He's been working very hard. The other thing I... And I, I bang this drum ever since uh, since Melbourne but the other thing that gives me a bit of sympathy towards Verline and maybe Sauber to an extent although they probably could have internally gone or just in case we'll, we'll we'll have this we'll have this plan B and teed up Giovinazzi but you know in testing he he did a dozen laps uh, consecutively ma- uh, as a maximum and those laps weren't you know absolutely flat out for for, for 12 laps pushing and he he immediately matched his um, personal best tally from testing in FP2 when he did his long run in, in Melbourne and it was a terrible long run. It was it was erratic, it's it was, it shot, was slow. It? I, I want to believe that both driver and team went there think genuinely thinking or hoping rather that there's not going to be a problem. And yeah, maybe I'm sure it could have been better managed. It does sound like in the weeks since Melbourne there's been a little bit to in and throwing on actually the extent of how much he was delayed, what the preparation compromises were. But I think that needs to be put behind him now. All of that needs to be behind him. It should never have been an issue in the first place, but it was. He's come back and straight out of the box, he's delivered the sort of performance that is why he's a Mercedes junior driver. And going back to that race, he was flattered to some degree because of all the guys who, who got um, messed up by the yellow flag at the end of qualifying. So he got, got into Q2. And then in the race, they put Ericsson on softs at the start and that completely ruined his race. So... You couldn't have a direct comparison between the two. But you, you have to take your opportunities, and he did. I'd agree with that. The best he could have finished that race was 11th. He finished 11th, so a nice good zero point for him. You can put all the nonsense behind him and, and, and build from there. Obviously, we briefly mentioned Fernando Alonso, who had some great battles in that race before eventually retiring. Yeah, what's he doing at the moment? Well, he's he's going to go to America in May and take on this little race called the Indy 500. Is if he? You, Missed that. Exactly. A few people may have heard of this, but this was announced on the Wednesday before the race. It's going to be entered under the McLaren banner. It's an Andretti Autosport car, effectively a sixth car for them at Indy. Obviously, Honda powered with the with the one make the one make chassis. This is massive news. He's missing the Monaco Grand Prix. Jensen Button coming back for for Monaco in his capacity as McLaren reserve, which wasn't a foregone conclusion, I think. But Alonso to Indy, I think, it's just a brilliant story for Formula One. It's brilliant for Alonso. It's great for McLaren and Honda to change the story from "You're terrible" to "Mega, you're doing this race." I think it's it's a win for everyone, isn't it? Overall, it's overwhelmingly brilliant, isn't it? I, I saw a couple of comments afterwards where people said jokes or semi-seriously, I had to check the date. It wasn't like a, an April Fool's joke. And I'm not saying I, I thought this is an April Fool's, but when I saw it, I did genuinely think... I, I did, don't think I took it seriously straight away. It's just one of those things that, that it's just so... It's so out of the ordinary, especially in modern times. Like Even when Hulkenberg was willing to do Le Mans, that wasn't missing a Grand Prix for it. So it, that was a bit sort of like, oh, this is this is really cool and different. And that in itself was a big enough step. But for someone to someone of Alonso's calibre as well, you know, two-time world champion, saying he's going to miss the 
biggest race of the season and arguably McLaren's best chance of scoring points in the short term to go and contest uh, the Indianapolis 500. Oh, it's just absolutely phenomenal. As Zach Brown said, the McLaren boss, he said it started as a bit of a joke and then got more and more serious. Yeah, and I think we should add it's also very good for Indianapolis. Oh, it's and, brilliant for and their break. championship and in fact all the drivers over there because it puts a bit of a focus on them and they'll obviously all be out to beat him. And the very fact that, that Fernando wants to go there shows the sort of level of respect he has for the championship and it, it's a huge positive for everybody. And they had to work hard to actually find a car for him to, to run in a car and engine package. Stefan Wilson basically had a deal done to do the race. He's backed out, his sponsors are being looked after and there'll be other opportunities for him to create a car for them for them to run and a Honda engine for them to run. I guess the big question is, can he win Indy? Obviously, he can win Indy. He's in the race. Just about anyone can win it with a fair wind, stay on the lead lap and the, and the right strategy and a bit of luck with fuel. Obviously, last year, Alexander Rossi, his victory was based upon going longer in the final stint upon, upon strategy. He wasn't the fastest car. He was floating around 10th to 20th place for, for most of the race. But is he going to be in there and contending on his oval debut in a car he doesn't know very well. I don't see why not if Andretti have got the package right. Um, obviously, every year some teams are do a little bit better than the others over the, that um, practice and qualifying period. Um, I, talk, I was talking to Danny Sullivan about it the other day and he, he was in Bahrain as a steward and he's got to know Alonso a little bit having done that job. For and he knows a little years. bit about winning Indy, doesn't he? Yeah, exactly. Spinning and, and winning. Uh, yeah, he knows how important it is not to spin. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, he's one of the one, He's one of the few drivers he's got away with a with looping it in the race. To there's, there's no shortage of people offering Fernando advice or who are going to offer advice in the next few weeks. But um, Danny had a chat with him at the weekend and told him not to even worry about qualifying. It's totally irrelevant. And even the first um, 400 miles, what have you, it's all about just keeping on the lead lap and being there for the sprint to the flag, basically being in the right position. We know Fernando's a pretty smart guy. We'll see how much of that sort of transfers over to Indy in terms of his his ability with tires, fuel management, all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, it should be a strong package. You'd imagine it has. To, it, it depends a lot on sort of if he strikes the right tone in terms of bravery, because he needs to be he needs to be bold enough to go out there and 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 not fear and not fear oval racing and the the prospect of a, of a huge accident. But also, he can't go too far that way and and risk. And risk doing something early on that either dents his confidence or worse, you know, takes him out in qualifying or the race and and has serious repercussions. And that's got to be the toughest balance to strike in motor racing. You know, how aggressive you need to go dictates every single every single race we see. And it, surely it's even more more significant or oval racing, least of all somewhere like Indy. There's a great column by Gary Anderson, our, our technical expert, who while he's best known for his F1 technical director antics with Jordan, he has engineered at the Brickyard with uh, with Gallas Racing, so he knows what, uh, what it's about. And he wrote an excellent column about all the challenges and how you approach it, how you adapt to track conditions, make sure you're there in the final stint. I would say it's going to be difficult for Alonso to win Indy for the simple reason that he's giving away a lot of experience. However, he's got the car, he's got Michael Andretti on strategy, he's got an Indy 500 winning race engineer, and he's also Fernando Alonso. So if anybody can do it in these circumstances, it's Fernando Alonso. And there's no way you count him out. He is an absolutely world-class driver and he's still been able to show that in a shed of a car, an engine package over the last three years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, there's a lot involved at Indy in, in terms of the the car and so on. And a great driver can't win with a rubbish car. But if you've got an okay car, which an Andretti car must surely be, 
Andretti um, won the race last yeah. year. I think I think only Penske's won it more times than the Andretti team in its various guises going back through and the years. It isn't just about steering it around four corners. There has to be a massive input from the driver um, over the whole said practice and qualifying period of the race, everything. And a good driver, a brilliant driver, one of the best in the world, it, surely that has to have some payoff eventually. No, no question. I would expect him to be... If he doesn't crash, if he doesn't get caught out, if he doesn't have a failure, I'm sure he'll be on the lead lap at the end, and I'm sure he'll be somewhere somewhere in the mix. It certainly wouldn't surprise me. If he was to win it, it would be a sensational achievement. Yes, he's got a decent amount of practice because it's not the month of May anymore, it's the two weeks of May, but there's a decent amount of practice. So he has got time to learn, and he'll be able to run with other cars and get a bit of a feel for it. They'll be able to experiment, because they've got six cars, Andretti. They'll be able to run as a little bit of a pack themselves and work out how their car works and traffic so he's got he's got a good chance of doing something good and i'm sure he'll do he'll do a very good job i mean we do see drivers in recent years admittedly at a time when it was probably a little bit easier a few years ago we saw kurt bush drop in and i think he finished sixth on his indycar debut admittedly a driver with huge amounts of oval experience from nascar but it is possible to switch codes as it were and get a good result the one thing to bear in mind about that though is that was obviously pre-aero kit uh, IndyCar. So, it, was mu- it was much easier to drive, let's say that. <laughs> yeah, well, easy. <laughs> it's all relative, isn't it? Going back to sort of options that you can, you, you, that you have to read about, uh, Alonso in Indianapolis on, on Autosport Plus. Oh, you're getting back in with the plugs, is, this uh, is good. The, uh, the new job Plus, is going very well. Autosport Plus, you know, fantastic, fully uh, fully immersive package that you can, uh, you can subscribe to for the cost a month of a London pint and a packet of crisps, I reckon. So... So on, on Autosport Plus last week, uh, Glenn Freeman, Autosport.com editor, uh, wrote a very good piece about what this means for IndyCar and whether it can have a sort of similar effect to, to when Mansell uh, went over to America in, in, in the early 90s. And Glenn's point was that of a couple of you know code converts in, in recent years, the likes of, of Bush and Jacques Villeneuve that went out there and, and performed very respectably, that was, that was pre-Aerokit era. So you have to think that you know taking Villeneuve's result as an example, which I believe was um, 14th and on the on the lead lap, you know, Glenn's suggestion was that would be a very respectable result for Alonso, and um, I, I I don't think he'd, you're always shaking your head, Adam. I don't think he'd be happy with that one bit, but it's also you know that's the reason he's not racing in the Monaco Grand Prix is because he doesn't want to finish 14th, does he? So he, he's he's going to talk a good game. He'll he'll be respectful of his competitors and the discipline, but. He's not going out there for anything other than to to succeed immediately at the first attempt, is he? He's got a much better package and better people around him than Villeneuve had when he went back, and uh, it's, it's, it's it's a much better situation. Also, with um, with what Alonso has to sort of contend with out there, it's it's absolutely fascinating. I'm really excited to finally see what he does with, as you mentioned earlier, sort of you know proper equipment, and not just proper equipment in terms of him having a competitive package under him, but something that's actually you know relatively equal to everyone around him. You know, we're always fascinated to see uh, one make racing gets quite a quite a raw deal from from a lot of people, and I know that you know to use a horrific cliche, variety is the spice of life and all that. But I, I like one make racing because okay, the teams make a difference. Uh, and, and setup can be very very crucial but I like one mate racing because of what it offers what it affords the drivers and I just, I'm f- really fascinated to see what Alonso can do in a discipline where he is not as you described earlier being forced to drive around a shed I saw one quote where he obviously he's done a lot of interviews and press conferences of what, one quote where he mentioned well if I don't win it this time I'll have to come back but the question is when will he be able to go back um, we might assume that if if he's with McLaren and Honda next year, which I think is unlikely that they can carry on, but if he's gone somewhere else, 
they're not going to release him, are they? And it that Monaco Indy clash happens basically nearly every year. Yeah, it's permanent, isn't it? Really? Yeah, nearly every year. But if if it is offset in the future, then qualifying will clash with with a race, a Formula One race. So it, this could be his only chance until he retires from Formula One. Also looking at another non-F1 category, we had the renamed FIA Formula 2 Championship kicking off in Bahrain. Joining us now is Alex Kalanorkas. After the feature race, Alex, all of the talk was about Artem Markalov following his win. But I guess the big story of the weekend was Charles Leclerc following up his Saturday third place with a victory in the sprint to lead the championship. This is a championship that generally rookies don't win. But has Leclerc now cemented his status as a title favourite, do you feel? I think at the moment it's too early to say he's title favourite. It was a very, very strong performance in the sprint race. It does remind me a little bit of Stoffel van Dorn in GP2 back in 2014. He took an early win uh, and then uh, he really took a long time to actually master the tyres. But by the end of the year, he was properly on it. And then as we know, went on to dominate in 2015. But he has proved that if he gets a sniff of a win, he will take it. And a lot of drivers might not necessarily have, have actually followed through with the win, even though they had um, a massive tyre advantage as he did have. That sprint race win where he unusually stopped. He went on the attack, got into the lead. I think he had a lead of just under eight seconds when he made an unusual for the for the Sunday sprint race stop. Was that victory a consequence of his failure to have got on top of the tyre management and the team saying, right, we get that, we're running with it, we'll go attacking? Yeah, potentially. I mean, if you look at his uh, second stint in the feature race, when he got onto the soft tyres, he, he wasn't really in the hunt. I think Nato would have won had Markelov um, not, not come back through. Um, so yeah, I think they made absolutely the right call. He was probably unlikely to have made the medium tyres to last in the sprint race. So therefore, by taking all the tyre life, getting that advantage, and then going onto the fresher tyres with the massive pace advantage, won in the race, really. That's to the detriment of Formula 2 as a feeder series, though, isn't it? The fact that we're in a, we're in a situation now where Formula 1 has deliberately moved away from higher degradation tyres. And, uh, and now we've still got a feeder series where the races are literally being won and lost because of tyre management. And I know that there's probably an argument that either the championship or Pirelli wasn't able for whatever reason, whether it's financial or, or logistically able to introduce a completely new tyre for this season. Being rebranded Formula 2 as well, it just deliberately aligns it with Formula 1 even more than it was before. And I just I just cannot, for the life of me, understand why that needs to be a part of, of, of Formula 2. It's supposed to reflect what the championship is. And this the argument as well that it just makes for better racing is just totally pointless in F2. It's like an under-21s football match having a multi-ball element because you think that makes it look more fun. It's absolutely irrelevant to what you're trying to teach these guys. No, I agree. And I think that um, obviously next year there's a new car coming in 2018. So if they don't switch back to low-deck tyres, then they've missed a massive opportunity there. Um, I think it did make sense if the drivers were graduating from what was GP2 to go into Formula 1 that had high-deck tyres, then having high-deck tyres in the feeder series did make sense at the time. Although, of course, there's an argument that some drivers might have looked good in GP2 because they were good at tyre management. They weren't necessarily the fastest drivers. Next year, new car comes in. Let's get back to making sure we get the fastest drivers coming to the top. I was impressed by Leclerc's overall performance. However, while he looked like a bit of a hero after his pit stop coming through, when you've got a three or four second a lap advantage on a circuit like Bahrain, where the traction off the corners is important, yes, you still had to execute it, but this was a driver with a with a big grip advantage doing what he needs to do. And actually, the hard work was done in that race when he built up that big lead. Absolutely. And again, I think there was a lot of noise made about the gap when he had, when he got pole position. It was a 0.7 uh, second advantage he had over Fuoco. But everyone, I think, forgot a little bit that no one had a chance to respond, really, because there was a rather embarrassing crash at the end of qualifying. Artem Markolov, is he going to be a title threat? I would guess he's a driver who's quite happy there's 
time management going on. He's good at it. The Russian time cars tend to be very strong on it. Obviously, he won the feature race. Initially, it looked like they made a strategic error by leaving him out a little bit longer on the first stint, but then that paid him back and more at the end as he as he came through to win ahead of Nato and, and Leclerc. But do we think that Markelov is going to be capable of sustaining that level of form overall? Coming into the season, he felt like a driver who was going to be thereabouts, but maybe not be quite consistent enough, certainly not strong enough in qualifying to always be a victory threat and therefore might struggle to put together a, a full-blown title bid. He needs to show it in Spain, I think, pretty early on if he is going to be considered a title threat. Um, because don't forget, he also stopped in the sprint race and didn't really do anything. As you say, the Russian time car is good on its tyres and he in the past himself, obviously we, that famous race last year at Monaco where he just kept going and going and going and then obviously had a bit of help uh, and ended up winning. But also I wouldn't discount you know, guys like Oliver Rowland. He had a bit of a scruffy weekend, um, was frustrated with, I know, with some brake problems, um, but he, uh, he was there and thereabouts. Also, Norman Nato as well probably should be kicking himself a little bit, I think, in that feature race because he he's done GP2. He's got the experience. Uh, and then you've got guys like uh, Matsushita, Luca Giotto. You know, they can't be discounted at this stage. I think it's good to see Leclerc doing well, though, because I do think he's going to be in the title mix, whatever happens. He's got a Prima car. He's a Ferrari junior. There was some talk about him getting an F1 promotion this year, potentially with Haas, who he tested for. And I think it was a little bit of a surprise that, it, that they decided so early not to put him in. But Leclerc is a, is a class act, isn't he? Yeah, and I think he, we will see him in an F1 car this year. Um, Racing or just testing? Testing and FP1s, I think. If I'm right, Magnussen and Grosjean have driven uh, in Bahrain this week, which means that the, I think it's the Hungary in-season test, isn't it? They have to have two rookie days. So it's a very um, very good job, whoever gets the that uh, role it has, if, if they get the two days in Hungary in the old FP1. And there's been a bit of juggling around between Giovinazzi and Leclerc. And I think there's a bit of a push from Giovinazzi's camp to get him in the Haas, simply because it's a better car, it's further up the grid. A few FP1s in that would be maybe more productive than getting back in the Sauber. So we'll wait and see how that plays out. It's good for F2 to have F1-aligned drivers fighting up at the front. And it's good for the drivers who aren't aligned. Obviously, Leclerc's aligned with Ferrari. Roland's aligned with Renault. He's their development driver, I think, is his official title. So there's, there's this good connection between the two. Yeah, and there's a lot of uh, F1 juniors, aren't there, in, in that um, on that grid at the moment, and it's that that always ensures that the Formula One paddock is watching a lot more intently. Um, if there are drivers like that in in what was GP2, it makes a huge difference to the sort of interest level. I guess the interesting thing is what happens after Bahrain, Alex, because Bahrain's always been a little bit of an outlier. We've seen some unusual performances there within the context of what happens later in the season. It's a very high tire deck because of the the high temperature there, so. Do we just have to take Bahrain as a bit of a prelude to the rest of the season? I think we do a little bit because the temperatures were just, you know, unbelievably hot there. Um, but at the same time, that that experience is still going to be the same. You know, Formula One and GP2, they do go to visit hot countries. That's going, that experience is going to be relevant. So Markelov laid down an early marker. Um, but also Leclerc, you know, I, I sort of slagged him off a little bit earlier in the, in the feature race saying that he went nowhere. But he did finish third and he's come out with a championship lead. So... You can't, you can't argue that's like there are other drivers who struggle with tyre management. McLaren Jr. Nick DeVries, for example, he struggled with the tyre management, dropped like a stone out of the points in the first race. We've seen drivers do that and have those sorts of problems in the past. So I think good for Leclerc to get so many points to have the championship lead and to have made something despite the, the tyre management problems, I think is, is credit to him. So thanks for your insight on F2, Alex. With F2 not going to Russia, the next round won't be until the Spanish Grand Prix meeting in May. We'll have an Autosport podcast next week previewing the Russian Grand Prix and then all the all the fallout from the race the week after. 
In the meantime, you can keep an eye on autosport.com for all the latest news and features from F1 and the whole world of motorsport. You can also check out this week's Autosport magazine out on Thursday, which features in-depth coverage of both the Bahrain Grand Prix and Alonso's Indy Adventure, as well, of course, as Alex's F2 coverage. From me, Ed Straw, thanks for joining us, and thanks to my guests, Scott Mitchell, Adam Cooper, and Alex Kalanorkas. We'll be back next week with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.